I hope you'll take your Bibles right now and open to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series, <clears throat> excuse me, entitled To Live is Christ. Now as we've worked through Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, I hope you've picked up on a couple of themes in the book of Philippians. Now one of the overwhelming themes in Philippians is this idea of rejoicing in Jesus together, rejoicing in what God has done for us. And then there's this incredible theme of of, of basically of us walking together with the mind of Christ, um, having humility together. But there's this other theme that has been intertwined all through it, and that is the theme of the gospel. All through chapters 1 and 2, Paul has mentioned the gospel. He has used words like this, our participation in the gospel, our fellowship in the gospel, our advancement of the gospel, the defense of the gospel, the confirmation of the gospel, all of those words he has used around the Philippian church. Remember, from, uh, all from, ever since the church was founded about 50 years ago, 15 years ago, um, in Philippi, Paul loves this church. He's now in prison, and he writes this letter, and with Paul in this moment in the prison are two people that we at least know of. One is Timothy, and one is Epaphroditus, and they have been there with Paul, ministering to him together. They've been caring for Paul's needs, and now in chapter 2, here at the end, Paul is going to send back to the Philippian church, Epaphroditus, who has been his gospel help, who's been his gospel partner. And so this text is going to be loaded with all kinds of implications for what it means to live our lives in light of the gospel. Now before I jump into the text, you have to ask the question at the very beginning, well, Jacob, you keep using the word gospel, Paul keeps using the word gospel, what does that actually mean? Well, the New Testament speaks of the gospel in several ways. I hope you've picked up on some of that from my preaching, but we don't speak of the gospel only as one way or only as one thing because the Bible doesn't. Now, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that first, the gospel is a plan. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, it is the good news that Christ died according to the Scriptures, which means God had a plan from, from all of eternity that He prophesied in the Old Testament to bring to fruition that Jesus died according to the Scriptures. The Gospel is a plan that the Father has enacted. But secondly, the Gospel is an event in history. Jesus really died on a, on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and it was witnessed and attested to. It really happened in history. Third, it is an achievement. The gospel is an achievement where, where Jesus actually paid for sin and righteousness has really been given to his people. What that means is that a, tr is that a transaction really took place between the Father and the Son on the cross that brings us salvation. So the gospel is, an, is a plan, it's an event, and it is a transaction. It is something that actually took place. Okay, It was an achievement. But fourth, and here's the good news that comes along with that, the gospel is an invitation. The gospel is an invitation to come and receive grace. The gospel is an offer that anyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus will be forgiven. So the gospel includes an invitation. But fifth, the gospel is also the application of Christ's work to us. 
It is applied to us by faith, and God counts us as forgiven, as I've just said, and righteous in his sight. So the Bible speaks of the gospel in all five of those ways. And so in light of that, let me add, as we get to Philippians and we look at our text today, that the gospel is the uniting and the transforming hope that we cling to as believers. We're in this church because we believe the gospel does something. That it unites us in Christ together as brothers and sisters, and it transforms our hearts, minds, actions, and behaviors. We are gospel people. At our heart, we are people who follow Jesus and cling to the hope we have in the gospel. Now, as we look at verses 19 through 30, I want you to notice how the gospel has shaped and transformed the lives of Paul, Epaphroditus, and Timothy. It has shaped everything about them. It has shaped their love for one another. It has shaped the way they make decisions. It has shaped the overall direction and purpose of their lives. And it has shaped their emotions. It has shaped the way they look at each other and interact with one another. Now as we open the text up, I want you to see this. That Paul, Epaphroditus, and Timothy are living examples of the mind of Christ that we've looked at in Philippians 2. They are living examples of self-sacrifice for the good of others. They are pictures of gospel people. So when we say we're gospel people, and Paul, Timothy, and Paphroditus are gospel people, we have to say, do our lives look like their lives? Do we model the gospel the way they did? So this morning, my title, um, as you might have been able to guess, my title this morning is Living as Gospel People. What does it mean for us to live as gospel people in light of Philippians 2, verses 19 and following? So let me read the text there and listen to what Paul says. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, that I, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am more eager to send him. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now I want to break this into just a couple of sections as we work through living as gospel people. So here's, my, here's, my, here's the first thing, the first category I want you to see in the text. I want you to see first the characteristics of gospel people. 
I think Paul gives us four characteristics here that are found in his life and the life of Timothy and the life of Epaphroditus. Characteristics that should be present in our lives if we're going to be gospel people. The first characteristic of the four is this. If you're a gospel person, if you're a gospel people, then you hope in Christ. Look what it says there in verse 19 and 21. Paul says, I hope in the Lord to do this. And then he says in verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself will come later. You'll notice here that Paul's ultimate hope in all of his circumstances is the Lord Jesus. This means that Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and us, we have to live and move, live and move, think and feel with Christ as the center of our minds and hearts. Our ultimate hope is Jesus. He is our ultimate joy. We live by Him and for Him. Now remember, as Paul is in prison, he isn't hoping in the Roman court system. That's not his ultimate hope. His ultimate hope and joy is not found in whether or not Rome does what is right. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus. My ultimate, the ultimate ruler of my life and circumstances is Jesus, and I trust him. Okay? So Paul's hope isn't the Roman emperor, it's Christ. In Paul's mind, Jesus orders the universe and not Rome. Rome can only do what Jesus permits. So Christ is the supreme ruler of all of his circumstances, whether that be his freedom. Christ is in control whether Paul, of Paul's freedom, not Rome. Jesus is in control of Paul's imprisonment, not Rome. Jesus is in control of Paul's comfort, not Rome. And even in Paul's distress, it is Jesus that is, that is his ultimate hope. So what this means for us, that if we are gospel people who hope in Christ... Jesus can't simply be, I know I've said this a lot, but it's so important. Jesus cannot simply be treated in our lives as an accessory. Jesus isn't like my watch that I can take off and leave at home, and if I forget it, it might be a little inconvenient, but I'll still be just fine. Jesus can't be an accessory. He can't be something extra to our life that doesn't really matter. He has to be our life itself. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Christ is our life, our hope, and our joy. It could be asked this way. Is Jesus the blazing sun at the center of your universe? Does he hold all of the planets of your life in their proper orbits? And I'll say it this way too, if Christ is your ultimate hope, then you're not in danger of what Paul says in verse 21, are you? Look at verse 21. Paul says, I have no one like him who's genuinely concerned for your, for your welfare. And he says, they look out for their own interests, not the interests of Christ. If your hope is Jesus, then who has your interests? Jesus. Who is your hope? Jesus, Right? So Paul's interests are Christ's interests, and our lives have to be used and spent for the interests of Christ, for his glory and for the good of others. So gospel people, first, hope in Christ. That's a characteristic. Christ is our hope. Second, the second characteristic is that gospel people are cooperative. 
they cooperate for the purposes of the gospel. Look at verse 20 there again. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. You see this reciprocation here? He says, for I have no one like him. And then Paul describes Timothy here as isosukos. I know you care about that. That's a Greek word. That means like sold. That Paul and Timothy share the same soul. And then look at the, verse of, the end of verse 22. He says that Timothy has served with him for the sake of the gospel. Not for him. Remember, Paul led Timothy to Jesus. He doesn't say Timothy works for him. No, no, no. Timothy serves with him, alongside of him, for the gospel. Ever since Paul met Timothy, Timothy has been faith, his faithful and true companion who has cooperated and participated in the gospel mission with Paul. It has been, it is, it's amazing to me that Timothy has been so critical to Paul's missionary endeavors that his name appears in the salutations of almost every letter Paul has written in the New Testament. Just flip through. If you go look at 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philemon, first, uh, uh, if you look at the letters of, of both Thessalonians, that it says that Timothy is with Paul. Timothy cooperates with Paul in, his gospel, in the gospel mission that's been given to us. So this is what that means for us. God has called us to cooperate. God has called us to participate in his purposes. His purposes must supersede our own. We all have things that we need to get done. I get it. We all have careers to chase down. We all have things that we, we have responsibilities. All of us have those things. But all of us still have been given the mandate of the Great Commission to make, gospel, to make disciples of all nations and to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are not here to build our own churches or our own kingdoms. We're here to carry out Christ's commands. And Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came and he sent us out to fulfill that mission. Now, I am a proud Southern Baptist. I am I'm grateful that I was raised in cooperating Baptist churches. And as Southern Baptists, we have historically been cooperative because the gospel is cooperative. We give to the cooperative program so that we can send our nearly 4,000 missionaries to the ends of the earth and our nearly, um, nearly 4,000 church planters here in the United States. We cooperate for the sake of the gospel. We are to be like-souled in the gospel so we can unite together for that purpose. If you're a gospel person, then there has to be something in you that says we are all here for the same purpose, to cooperate towards the same ends. That's why we're here. That's why we, we are better together than any of us are individually. After all, when we send out missionaries, they plant churches which are gospel people together united, fulfilling God's purposes. The third characteristic. The third characteristic are, is that gospel people are concerned for others. That if you're a gospel person, you have a deep, ingrained, God-given concern for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at the end of verse 20. He says, Timothy is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy genuinely loves the Philippians just like Paul, and we must genuinely love others. After all, one of the things that proves we're disciples of Jesus is what? Our love for one another. 
That's what proves to the world that Jesus has transformed us by his love and his grace. 1 John 3 uh, 3 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. How do we know love? That Jesus laid down his life for us. That's love, self-giving, self-sacrificial for the good of others. But then listen to what he says. This is so important. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So Jesus laid down his life for us. What do we do? We lay down our lives for the good of others. And then he goes on to say, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This means that love is not love if it's only in word. It has to be accompanied by action that that is directed towards the object of love. Right? Gospel people are genuinely concerned for others. And that, that concern has to show itself. It has to be physically and visibly manifested in our lives towards others. That's a characteristic of gospel people. The fourth characteristic, gospel people are consistent consistent that doesn't mean we don't fail or falter but it does mean we have a consistency in our life that is godward that we have ups and downs and valleys and mountains but over the course of our lives you see this consistent growth towards jesus look what he says there in verse 22 he says but you know he tells the philippians you know timothy's proven worth you know it he's proven it how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel paul is calling the philippians to account right he's saying you know it you've seen it it's been demonstrated to you over and over again by his consistent manner of life that timothy is concerned for you he's been consistent even in the midst of hardships his consistency has been proven even through testing even through difficulties he says he's not like those, who, who, those in, the, in, the, in the book of James, in the letter of James, where James chides people, and James says, you can't be like those who look in the mirror and then walk away and forget what you look like. You, you flow like the wind. You know, you're, every wind and wave just tosses you back and forth. There's no consistency in your life. He says Timothy is consistent. Another word for that is faithful. Faithful. After all, what's God's standard for stewards? Faithfulness. It is required among stewards that a man be found faithful, consistent. Now, here's the question for us, the questions. Are these characteristics present in your life? Is Christ your ultimate hope and joy? Is that characteristic present? Is Jesus the center of your life? Does the gospel compel you to cooperation where you're like, We here, we give together to support the ongoing mission efforts of our church. Do we cooperate with other believers in ministry or do you sit and soak and don't believe you have anything to do with the mission of Jesus? Are you filled with genuine concern for your brothers and sisters, especially those in other places facing hardships? And is your life model a consistent, God-word, Christ-word move those are the characteristics of gospel people found in here in philippians now let me give you the second main heading 
I want you to notice that not only are there characteristics of gospel people, there are responsibilities of gospel people. That those, that when we come to Christ, that there are certain responsibilities that come to us as well. Look at verse 25. He says, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So I want to just pull some of the things out here and talk about our responsibilities. I want you to notice that first, gospel people have a family to love. You have a family to love. You know what he calls Epaphroditus? He's my brother. He's my brother. Now, this is, this is how we are to relate to one another in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. We are part of the same family. We have shared familial responsibilities. Hear me. Epaphroditus isn't just another Greek from Philippi. You have to remember that. He's a brother. Paul is Jewish. Epaphroditus is Greek. And now they are brothers united in Jesus. Everything that the world says should separate Epaphroditus and Paul. Jesus has removed in the gospel. They have different, back, different backgrounds, different religious upbringing, different political systems, probably different educational levels. And Paul says we're brothers. That's our responsibility to one another. So gospel people have a family to love. That's us in this room, our brothers around the world. You have more in common with, our, we have more in common as believers with our Haitian brothers and sisters than we do with the neighbors across the street from us who might look like us, talk like us, have the same cultural upbringing, but they know not Jesus. We're going to spend eternity with our Haitian brothers and sisters. We are not going to spend eternity with those even from our own neighborhoods or family that don't know Jesus. That should motivate us towards gospel purposes. But gospel people, secondly, have a work to do. Notice what he says. He says that Epaphroditus is my fellow brother and my fellow worker. That Epaphroditus has been doing work. He's got stuff to do. We aren't called to be, we're not called to Christ to be lazy or to take it easy. We have a job and a ministry to carry out for the glory of Jesus. And this doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves or have rest or have recreational activities, but it does mean that we can't simply come to church and sit here on Sundays and pretend that this is the only Christian obligation we have. This is not it, guys. This isn't. If this is the only Jesus you get all week long, not a gospel person. We have a responsibility to do the work of Christ everywhere we go. This is where we come and get our batteries recharged so that we can pour them out the rest of the week for the glory of Jesus and the good of others. We have a work to do. Third, gospel people also have battles to fight. Look what he says. He says that we are soldiers. We're fellow soldiers. We have a general. We have marching orders. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. And we must arm ourselves spiritually for the battle in front of us. Take up the whole armor of God. This is what Paul says, right? Paul viewed his whole life and ministry as one of warfare. Not one of battling and wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the forces of evil in this world. And he tells Timothy in his letter to Timothy, near the end of his life, Paul says what? I have fought the good fight. I'm a soldier. A soldier who, who has been enlisted doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of this world, but only to please the one who enlisted him. 
Listen, this world is war. But it's not fighting people. It's fighting against the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work all around us. We have battles to fight. Some of you are in the midst of them right now, and they're battles of faith. Battles of faith to believe the promises of God or do your own thing. Some of us are in the midst of those right now, whether it be in our family relationships, whether it be in our medical conditions, whether it be in our relationships with our neighbors or our works. We know what it's like to be in a fight. And it's a fight for our very lives and the spiritual health of our souls. We have battles to fight. But then gospel people, fourthly, have a church to represent. Gospel people have a church to represent. Look what it says there. He says that Epaphroditus is your messenger and minister to my need. Your messenger. Now, Epaphroditus is a Philippian church member. That's who he is. Hear me. He was saved by the grace of Jesus. He was publicly baptized and became a recognizable part of the Philippian congregation. They knew him and he knew them. The word for messenger here is the word apostle. What that means is that he has been sent by the church. That's what apostle means, one sent out. He's a little a apostle, not a big a apostle like Paul. Okay, He has been sent to represent the church. He is actually under the church's authority in some sense. He is the one the church has chosen to carry the financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. So the Philippian church chooses Epaphroditus and sends him to the Roman prison to Paul. He is their messenger, their apostle, their family member. He is their ambassador of their love and care for Paul. Now as Paul commends Epaphroditus in these ways, he gives us insight into how Paul sees the gospel and how, we are to, and how we're supposed to see the world through it. Hear me, we have responsibilities. Gospel people have responsibilities to discharge. The gospel is a stewardship. It comes with responsibilities for all of us. And hear me, we are not passengers of the gospel. We don't get on the bus and sit. We don't get on the plane and sit. We don't get on the boat and sit. We are not passengers of the gospel. We are partners in the gospel. That's what it means. That's what gospel people are. We are partners in the gospel. So we've seen the characteristics. We've seen the responsibilities. Thirdly, let's look at the risks of gospel people. The risks. Look at verses 26 through 27. I want to break this up. He says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Three risks here. There's three risks of gospel people that Paul gives us. The first one is gospel people are willing to risk emotional heartache. Look at what it says there in verse 26 and 27. It says there that Epaphroditus has been longing for the Philippian church and has been distressed. He's in emotional turmoil over his church. He's distressed and then notice what it says there at the end. Paul says, I'm going to send him to you lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now both Paul and Epaphroditus have risked emotional heartache in ministry. It's hard to go into cities and be ran out and to be 
abused by people and to be mistreated by people when your only goal is their eternal good. You want to see them flourishing and and fellowshipping in the name of Jesus, knowing that their sins are forgiven and they have an eternal home with Christ, and yet they ridicule, mock, and torment you. They've risked emotional heartache. And Epaphroditus now longs to be home with his church family. And Paul knows the heartache that he will face when Epaphroditus leaves him. He's been there ministering to Paul and encouraging him. And Paul's writing this letter and is going to hand it to him. And Epaphroditus is going to walk all of those miles back to Philippi. And Paul's going to be alone in prison. It's emotional heartache. The person that's given you comfort and strength and joy. And you're going to send him away. Because Paul's willing to risk that for the good of the Philippians. He's willing for his own heart to be broken and for him to be without comfort to send them his best. Paul mentions sorrow three times in these verses. And Paul loves his brothers and sisters so deeply that he can be moved to sorrow for them. Now, loving others, hear me, loving others is always risky. Amen? It's always risky. You can't love someone without risking emotional heartache. It's impossible. If you can never be hurt by people, you don't love people. Because let me tell you, if, if I walk down the street and some Yahoo yells at me and says, you're an idiot and I hate you and I don't know who that is, I'm going to go, well, isn't that guy crazy? I don't care what he thinks. He doesn't know me. I don't care. But if one of you were to say something like that to me, that would be devastating. Because I know you and I love you. That's the thing. That's, by the way, that's another example why you shouldn't pay attention to what anybody says on the internet. You don't know those people. Leave them alone. Quit being a troll. Don't let them troll you. Just love the people God has put in your orbit. Somebody you can look in the eyes. Okay? Somebody that you know, because nobody's going to say something to somebody's face that they say on the internet. We know that. But here's the point. You cannot love without willing to allow without willing without being willing to allow your heart to be disappointed and broken sometimes. Right? It happens. If you love people, you're willing to let your heart be trampled on every now and then. It hurts, but that's the risk of loving. So there's emotional heartache. Secondly, gospel people are willing to risk physical illness. He says there in verse 26, because you heard that he was ill. Somewhere along the line, Epaphroditus and all of this ministry had become ill. We don't know what the illness was, but Paul says that he was, he was very ill. And the church was distressed because they had heard about Epaphroditus being ill. But my point is, Epaphroditus was willing to carry out his ministry and risk being sick. He was willing to risk it for the sake of Jesus and for the ministry of others. He was t- willing to take a certain level of risk. Now, I'm not here to tell you what risk tolerance you should have. That's between you and Jesus. But I know that gospel people are willing to take some risks. All throughout history, that's what happened. Um, in, all, every other, in every other major world event since the time of Jesus, Christians have moved towards the hurting and towards the sick. They're the ones that have set up ado- adoption agencies and orphanages and hospitals, risking si- uh, illnesses, risking sickness, risking disease, risking heartache, Risking abuse from the government for the sake of the gospel. That's what Christians do. We don't run from risk. Sometimes we run towards them. And then finally, gospel people are willing to risk even death. You notice what it says there in verses 27 and 30. It says, indeed, he was ill near to death, for he nearly died risking his life. Now, I want to say that this is the story of every New Testament Christian 
strode across the Roman Empire. When Paul writes these words that Christians, gospel people, are willing to risk death, he's not, this isn't some fairy tale, feel-good motif. This is really happening. In 64 AD, the, emperor, the Roman Emperor Nero burned Christians as lamps on street corners. It, it literally happened all across the empire. Christians were willing to risk death that to follow Jesus came with real, real risks of dying for the sake of Christ. And today it seems that we're more worried about telling Christians, telling people we're Christians for fear of someone writing something mean on Twitter. You can't be scared of that. We have brothers and sisters in the world today, right now in places like Afghanistan, Afghanistan, who know what it means to be a gospel person and take certain risks. We have to remember that. We have to remember that. And then finally, oh man, I've preached a long time, y'all. Woo! I'll do this very briefly, I promise. I want you to notice finally the rewards of gospel people. We've had risks, but there's also rewards. Their rewards, look, look, at, look at first that gospel people are a blessing to others. Look at verse 28. Look at this blessing. They're a blessing to others. He says, I am, more, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. Paul is sending Epaphroditus because he knows he'll be a blessing. Epaphroditus will be a blessing to his church, and Paul will be less anxious worrying about the church at Philippi. Gospel people are a blessing. When, they, when, they, when you see gospel people coming, you shouldn't go, oh gosh, I don't want to be around them. It should be, they refresh my soul. They stir me up to love and good deeds. Secondly, gospel people are to be received with joy. He says there in 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy. That's a, that's a reward. Being received with joy. Received with joy. And finally, gospel people are to be held in high regard. That's a blessing. Look what it says in verse 29. Honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. Respect. Honor. That's the reward of walking with Jesus among other believers. That we can be a blessing. We can participate in the joy of other believers. And we can honor one another as we walk with Jesus together. Now this is what it means to live as gospel people. So I want, I want to conclude with this. Don't you want to live in such a way that Paul would write that commendation about you? That he would say that, He's a blessing, honor them, receive them with joy. Wouldn't it be something for Paul to write that commendation about any of us in this room and it be preserved for all of history, all of church history about you? That shows the, that shows the reward of being like-souled with Paul as he was like-souled with Christ. And I'll tell you, I want to be that kind of gospel person. I want, to be, I want to be willing to steward the gospel and live like these men for the sake of Christ. And it begins by coming to Christ by faith. Then, it, then next, it, it's committing yourself to live and serve among God's people in a local church where you can represent them as you represent Christ to others. I want to pray for us, and then we'll have a brief time of invitation. Father, I pray your word has been given and it has been received. And Father, we ask most of all that in this room, if there's someone who knows not Jesus, they will give their heart and life to him today. Father, stir us up to love and good deeds. May we all live as gospel people until Christ comes when we receive the reward 
of faith. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.